You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, America. I'm Aprom Kipolevich. Dr. Juni, um, I want to talk a little bit, and I know you were interested in talking about it as well, uh, the phenomena that of anxiety and phobias and other issues that have cropped up um, at a, I don't know if we would call it an alarming rate, but a study in uh, that was uh, circulated uh, in the month of November from Lancet, which is a uh, <coughs> uh, prestigious medical journal, I believe, I think you agree, that uh, people, about almost 20% of people that had COVID uh, were diagnosed within 90 days of getting that uh, illness. They were diagnosed later with um, some sort of psycho- psychiatric disorder. And what's interesting is is that um, almost 10% of them had never had any sort of diagnosis like this in the past. And the researchers are trying to figure out if there perhaps is some sort of connection between this disease and some another after effect, which is being prone to various types of psychiatric disorders, uh, especially ones, I guess, that are connected uh, to anxiety issues. And I think that when we were talking about this before we started recording, I think you indicated that people that are already uh, in a state that uh, what used to be called universally uh, hypochondriacs are people that are suffering from illness anxiety disorder um, or uh, found themselves uh, in an extreme state uh, due to COVID because there was constant material being blasted over all sorts of uh, information platforms that people were getting very obsessed with it and worried about it to the point that it was strengthening the already issue that they already had about uh, worries about in general about catching all other types of diseases or or are somehow having cancer or having a heart attack or everything else that people who have illness anxiety disorder have this now was added to the mix So not only do we have people in the Lancet study who never had anything all of a sudden being affected with psychiatric disorders, the people who are already known to have illness anxiety disorders, COVID has really thrown um, a a tremendous increase bomb into that segment of the population. And we are now having, uh, I don't know if it's a, a, a crisis but clearly, it's, 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 it's much, much worse. So I thought this might be worthwhile to discuss in general uh, this phenomena of COVID specifically, but also in general about the types of irrational um, and uh, fears that this is a, a, an indicator of. And maybe if you could also, I know this is adding another layer, but I know it's a layer that you're very familiar with, the general idea of phobias uh, in, uh, of all different sorts and types. Okay, that's the structure. 
I now we let, let's talk about the um these three different topics and we'll start with the first. Um so let me say um as an introduction, comorbidity, which means um having a an additional diagnosis in the um after the primary diagnosis is very common. In fact, it's the norm. It's not usual that you have just one diagnosis without another comorbid um, diagnostic. And very often, the second diagnostic that comes in is usually psychiatric. Now, when I say second, I mean to say the second one that's diagnosed on the chart. I am not saying at all that it is secondary and it develops from the first. And that's always a question. There's a whole, whole field called psychosomatic medicine, which looks at um, instances when there are physical problems and there are also psychiatric problems and there's a chicken-egg issue. Um, it used to be um, before medicine was very well developed, it was assumed that many illnesses, in fact, derive from psychiatric causes, which then cause a somatic problem. That's psychosomatic. Psycho, psyche means the soul. So, soma means the body. So psychosomatic problems with the soul or problems of emotionality cause physical problems. I can tell you when I was in training initially, there was a very prominent journal called the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine, where you had constant streams of articles coming out outlining various kinds of physical illness and saying exactly where it came from. And we had to know that for our comps, for our uh, major defenses. And it was it was one of the banes of um, my graduate training, memorizing all of this. I can tell you by now, you can't find this journal anymore because as medical advances have come up these last couple of decades, many of the, what we call psychosomatic illnesses have been graduated out of psychiatry into straight medicine ranging from ulcers to hypertension to boils to heart attacks. I mean, all that has been excised out. So what that leads me really to the point here is that when you start thinking, well, here you have a phenomenon of COVID, which attacks the body, and you also have some blatant psychiatric symptoms, which definitely are around. I mean, there's like, I have a flood of calls these days about people who are um, presumably never had psychiatric problems coming up with them because either because they had COVID or because they're afraid of COVID. So it definitely is there. But I need to tell you that for people who actually have COVID and they suffer psychiatric illnesses, I'm pretty much convinced that this is a straight physical ailment, that it's not psychiatric in origin. Um, obviously, many illnesses cause uh, problems with the body psychiatric illness is often just a problem of the body. It can be a metabolic, it can be hormonal, it can just be that certain functions in the brain are not um, optimal. I mean, a typical one is depression. When you get the flu, you get depressed. And there's a, I mean, I can treat it with the, with the antidepressants, but it's not a psychiatric problem. It's actually your body being attacked. So that I, I can say that fairly clearly. That's not to say that there aren't also quite a few what we call psychosomatic problems going on with COVID, because clearly it's a very uh, it's a situation which makes people very anxious. So we can try to partial that out some when we talk some more about anxiety proper. But uh, yes, so what's going let, on? Let here? me just yes. let me just interrupt you for a second. Again, was that other illnesses as they they because they had a control group 
of people who had the flu, people who had broken bones, people who had other things that were painful and difficult, and it did not result in that psychological um, indicators of, 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 of those diagnoses. So it sounds so like... I, I would like to make a distinction between the um, illnesses which affect the overall body, such as metabolism and brain function, versus broken bones, which are very localized. In other words, there's no question that anything which attacks the entire body, anything which involves the immune system, anything which involves any kind of a, um, a mobilization of the body will have psychiatric repercussions. If you include in your control book broken bones, you're going down the wrong track. Mm -hmm. um, cancer? Uh, questionable. It's questionable cancer, but something like uh, something that affects you overall will definitely have psychiatric um, um, repercussions. Um, that's not to say that the other theory is incorrect. There's no question that if you have what we call latent or blatant uh, psychiatric issues, they will either come out or emerge into actual behavior in case one or become exacerbated in case two. So both of them are true. I'm just saying that the major spike that we see here is most likely an effect of the either the virus or the immune response, the attempted immune response of the body. I doubt that it's all psychosomatic, but I can tell you I've seen people where it's definitely psychiatric. So that, that is present as well. I'm just saying the proportion, if I had to guess my way through it, I would say it's A rather than B. But of course, I mean, things that people understand better is the B, because the A is something that you won't understand unless you know the minutia of the uh, bodily reactions and how that brings on uh, um, psychiatric uh, conditions. It's interesting, though, you know, even in your lifetime, as you said, and that you've seen almost a reversal of, uh, of, of like you say, of the, of, of the chicken or the egg, when you were going to school, well, and... I would say not only reversed. I would say the 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 chicken, so to speak, has almost been killed totally. <laughs> There's very little left in the psychosomatic. I mean, to the point that that uh, huge journal shriveled to to a joke. And there, I would say, many uh, people who graduate with doctorates these days don't even know. They wouldn't even recognize those uh, legends or fables that were pretty alive 20 years ago. So they would consider it as primitive as bloodletting or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, something absurd, something absurd. Wow. And it is, in hindsight, it is absurd. It's not correct. Yeah. And and probably one of the reasons why um, it's been thrown out is because of the incredible advancements of what we can know about the human body and the brain and, sure. and the, type, the type of diagnostic machinery, I guess you would call it, that can measure and see and and that really yes. indicates that the changes start in the in the physical organism sure. and then sure. spread into the other thing so sure. so how can you uh, so this is a phenomenon which is not surprising to you and the 20% rate might even be larger uh, if, if people would actually uh, yeah. you know act on it, it, it go... is, it's very, it's very underestimated i would say 20% is very underestimated I can't see anybody coming through with a diagnosis of something of profound proportions like AIDS or COVID without having at least two comorbid um, psychiatric diagnostics. I can't see it. And I would say probably the people who are doing the diagnostics are just not knowledgeable enough about psychiatric conditions. And, you know, you don't need to because somebody comes in, you know, depression 
or, or um, paranoia or, or extreme anxiety states are almost secondary when you're dealing with a life-threatening um, um, situation. So they don't bother. But if, let's say, somebody were to, if there was a supervisor there uh, in the emergency ward saying, hey, what else? Of course they would do it. Look, they're not going to include itching. Itching is a, is a medical diagnosis. You won't see itching coming up in the COVID uh, chart. It's so too they insignificant. They, they consider it secondary when they're trying to save people's lives, which, uh, yeah, I guess makes sense from their perspective, but sure. So the second factor, and again, I'm sorry for sort of like uh, steering this. The second factor, of course, was the, um, the people who didn't get COVID necessarily, but are uh, have a general fear. And you agree that, you know, hypochondria is sort of like an irrational fear of getting cancer or every time they have uh, upset stomach, they think they're having a heart attack. Um, now in the, in the world of, of COVID and the unknown, those people are, are really suffering as well. Those people are really, their anxiety and issues are going off the chart because I think, whereas when it comes to, uh, you know, heart attack or cancer, uh, you could probably talk to those people and use talk therapy to make them go to some safe space and sort of say, I don't really have it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessing about it. It's really not true. They can maybe talk themselves out of it. When it comes to COVID, there's so much unknown and, and, and there's so much fear mongering. It's almost like, you, you know, you, you, you get I get the New York Times um, uh, update every morning and, you know, it's full of not only the, all the information about where it's spreading, where it's not, what's going on, charts and, and, and issues of every down to the, the to the smallest detail we're so wrapped up in it. How could somebody who has this, let's say, illness, anxiety disorder, how could he even manage through COVID? Because he would have to shut himself up in a cave or something, right? Okay, so let me try to just, you know, bat this around a little so we come up with some perspective. Um, There's a key term in defining phobias, and that's the term irrational, okay? Irrational is an interesting term because... um, but the logic we're talking about here is not statistics. We're talking about what's called social logic, what's accepted among people. In other words, if you live in a society where people are very fearful of X and Y, we will not label you as having an anxiety reaction to certain, to certain stimuli. So um, here's the issue. When you really don't know what's going on, it's hard to say what's rational and what's irrational. When you have the data, then you use societal norms and say, well, if you are afraid of something that has a 0.00 or whatever percent, we're going to call you irrational, otherwise not. So, for instance, um, if you're afraid to walk out on the street because you might get hit with a car, by a car, we call you phobic, right? Is it irrational? No. Do people get hit by cars? Yes. Can I give you a percent? Yes. So what is it, let's say you have a 2% chance or a 0.02% or 0.002%, what makes you irrational and what doesn't? So it's only normative. We can only say, well, looking at people in general, how much are people afraid to go out? Uh, how much are people afraid to eat something on chance that you'll get food poisoning and die? It's not irrational. The percentage is there. Um, the assumption is that because of your connections to life, and to people around you, you have an inside good sense 
of what you consider really rational and really not. So in other words, if I'm afraid of something, if only I can talk to you and just give you enough anti-anxieties to keep your anxiety reaction at bay, you would admit that this is not rational. Okay, but ultimately it has to do with you. If you are in an environment where you've been told that you have a 90% chance of dying if you take your mask off for five minutes, and I can imagine such environments, let's say if both of your parents are, you know, bona fide hypochondriacs, you would not be called phobic. You'd be called just basically having the wrong facts and therefore your rationality is messed up. So um, what we're dealing with here is if you want to call somebody phobic, is someone who knows darn well to, to, to say it in colloquial language that it's not so, but you're still afraid. Let, let's give you an example, okay? Um, you're afraid of going on an airplane because it's going to crash, right? That's called phobic. Do planes crash? Yes. Is there a certain percentage? Yes. But that same percentage would not tick you off if you were talking about some other kind of fear. Like you do eat food, you're not afraid that there's going to be some arsenic in there. Perhaps that's the same. And in fact, I'd say it's probably a bigger chance to have arsenic in canned food than there is um, for crashing in a plane. So what's going on? What's going on is that you can't think about it rationally because you're getting the results of an anxiety reaction that's interfering with you. So that's the only criterion. We make like a, an assumption or what's really going on in your mind from a logical perspective. And then we excel, we expound from there and say, aha, but you yourself are being more anxious than, and sometimes I'm to give you an example, people have claustrophobia, okay? Claustrophobia has no logic to it. And that was the chances of getting asphyxiated in an elevator where there's a fan going is zero. I mean, I can't say it's zero, nothing is zero, but it's much less than having a plane crash on you. So if you talk to someone and say, what's going on with you in an elevator, they will usually admit saying, no, I have no logic to this. When I go in the tunnel, I have no logic. Now, in the tunnel, you might say, yes, there might be a crash and you'll get stuck there and all the vents will go out and they won't work at all. Or let's say, fear of heights, right? Some people, freak out when they are on a high floor and they look out of a window. They themselves will tell you. And again, they are the criteria, not me, not your mother, not the rabbi, not the psychologist. They will tell you, no, it's not rational. This glass will not break. I think the chance of this glass breaking is so minimal that I'm not worried about that. But I'm getting anxious. Okay, so that's the criterion of what anxiety is all about. So let me just give you... A, all, a little introduction about how anxiety relates to phobias, okay? Anxiety is a reaction that we're born with. There is no if about it, there's no explanation for it. It is no, shall we say, um, uh, uh, transcendental information other than saying that genetically it's just there. Why is it there? I mean, I spoke to God, I know the answer, okay? It's there because it's what you use or your unconscious uses or your superego uses as a threat to say, don't go there because you'll get anxious. And that threat is enough to keep you alive and keep you from doing things that will put you in danger. That's the religious or evolutionary explanation. But regardless, you don't need that because it's given. Anybody will tell you, anybody who knows bodies or people or psychiatry will tell you anxiety is a given. Okay? Now, um, anxiety is supposed to be there as a check. But if you follow the um, 
the guidelines of those checks if you don't, let's say, do something that's certain to kill you, if you don't do something that's certain to get you sick, if you don't do certain some things that are certain to get you into such trouble that you lose your job and you lose your spouse and you lose your parents and your children, then you steer clear and you're not anxious. Some people somehow have a certain level of anxiety regardless of them avoiding the basic pitfalls, okay? And that's a psychiatric diagnosis called general anxiety disorder. They can't put their finger on it, but they're constantly keyed up. If you measure them physiologically, you can see it in various kinds of autonomic findings or, or um, heart rate or, or blood pressure or GSR. It makes no difference. It's there. That's called the general anxiety disorder. Very common in Americans. It's like... I don't know, many, many millions, tens of millions. I mean, probably much more than tens of millions. And there are anti-anxiety medication that just knocks it down and it does well. Now, for some people, what they get, and I'm sorry, and let's just make it clear. There's nothing irrational about it. Say, what are you nervous about? You can't talk to somebody. You can give them medication or you can train their body, so to speak, that their autonomic systems become such that they're typical of somebody who's not anxious, and by definition, they won't be anxious, because anxiety itself, you can't have anxiety without the autonomic system getting into an anxious mode. So you can, the olden days, what we would do is talk to people, which doesn't work as well. The best ones just give medication, which knocks down the autonomic system to a non-anxiety level, and then by definition, you can't feel anxious. Um, what happens to some people is that the anxiety gets bound up with certain scenarios or certain kinds of stimuli. Um, closed spaces, open spaces, tall spaces, being in front of a crowd, being next to a dog, being next to a snake. There's all kinds, and we have all kinds of funny names from Latin and Greek for that, so that the layman will think we're very sophisticated. But all it means is an irrational fear of X or Y or Z or whatever. Now, um, in terms of the way the body works, this is actually a way of getting rid of anxiety. And let me explain that. If you have general anxiety disorder, you're always anxious. That's very uncomfortable. If I can make a deal with the devil, so to speak, the devil being this anxiety animal we have within us saying, you know what? I'm going to be anxious just in high spaces, just in low spaces, just in closed spaces, means I'm liberated. I've shunted it, and now I'm not anxious anywhere else. But when you get to that situation, you're going to get very anxious. And when I say very, I mean that clinically there's something called a panic reaction or an anxiety attack. And when you have an anxiety attack, what happens is that um, you start getting in a mode where anxiety is the only thing that's managing your body. And the people report symptoms like, I'm going crazy, I can't breathe, I'm suffocating, I feel I'm going to die, I have to get out of here at all costs, even if it means flying out of a window of the third floor or, or punching somebody in the face or whatever I need to do, I need to go and I stop thinking. That's an anxiety reaction. In the sense, a panic reaction or a phobia is something like that, namely, if you get a phobia, how do you define a phobia? The way you define a phobia in terms of a litmus test, a rule of thumb is that if I were to take you and force you into a phobic situation, you would have a panic attack or a full-blown anxiety reaction. That's the the uh, the rule of thumb of how to define a phobia. Um, now, let, let me let me just ask you one. Yes, go ahead, please. Let me just ask you uh, two things on that. Um, one thing is, and maybe you can answer both questions before you get back to your, your, your main overarching thesis. The first question is, I've read that 
there's a there seems to be a, a, a an aspect of uh, of of I don't know if it's a genetic marker, but there's def, they, it seems to run in families. There seems to be this idea that um, that they've noted that certain sorts of phobias seem to be your your, your grandfather had it, your father had it, your brother had it. Um, it, it does it make sense from your perspective that that there should be a a, a predisposition based on a certain genetic marker for certain phobias or certain types of things? Okay, so it does not make sense to me in terms of specificity of what stimulus causes, which stimulus causes the phobia. What makes much more sense to me is that it's socialized. I remember my mom who had a fear of needles and injections would freak me out every time before we went to the dentist or before we went to have an injection. And she said, oh, when it happens this, you hold on tight to here, you look here, you look there. And I, I was not even afraid of it to begin with, although I sure became very fearful of it. And I just had a, a, an incident. My daughter told me that my daughter also had gotten some of that from me. I tried not to do it to her, but she got some of it. And then she just took her little kids to the doctor. And the doctor says, we'll do some blood test. And you... Uh, Israel, you're going to help me. Okay, here, you hold on to this, and look at this. And my daughter started freaking out, and he just, like, shushed her away. He said, hey, you hold this. Look at this blood. Isn't it cool? And the kids were fascinated. These are two twins, I don't know, eight years, seven years old. They were fascinated. So they, they had no problem with it at all. So I would say it's primarily socialized. I would say that being anxious, having a heightened anxiety level is definitely genetic. It's definitely inherited, but not specific. And maybe even the propensity for anxiety attacks, which means that your generalized anxiety level is very high and you basically should be on a low dose anti-anxiety medication. But I would say specificity is not. I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Carl Gustav Jung, who had this theory of a collective unconscious and he had this evolutionary theory that there's no way we would have survived in the caves without an innate fear of snakes and spiders, which were basically killers. And there was no time to sit there and have a meeting with the local caveman rabbi to say, well, there's a snake here. What should I do? You have to react before you even think. And he thinks that that's become part of the genetic makeup. I mean, he was obviously Lamarckian, as many of the people those days were. And they felt that after there for a while, it gets embedded in your DNA, and then that's what it's all about. I think it's poppycock. I don't think it's true, but many people are Lamarckians, at least uh, unconsciously. Many physicians are Lamarckians, and they go along with it. Lamarckian, they're sort of like somewhat partners with Darwinian uh, the sense of of, of evolution. Yes, they definitely are part of it, but the the, the, um, bent there is, which is that before Darwin came along, the assumption was that if you experience something across a couple of generations, it becomes part of your markers, and then you pass that on to, right. um, to whatever. To your, here's, the your second, here's the second question I wanted to ask you, and uh, you know, in our little text uh, in the middle of the night for me, and in the early morning for you, I, I threw this out at you, and I wanted to uh, develop it a little bit more. I seem to remember that, um, and I think it was from your Rebbe, uh, uh, Reb Sigmund himself, that uh, there was some idea that some of these phobias, especially snake phobias and other things, might be connected to some sort of um, uh, 
edible or, or, or other issues or like, again, the, the, somehow the fear of snakes might be connected to the idea of a, of a child seeing their parents' genitalia or seeing them involved in sex. Is there anything, uh, <laughs> I know you've heard about it. He's your Rebbe. What do you have to say about that? I have to say that he's correct, but in a very limited fashion. Okay, so th there's no question that the standard psychoanalytic literature has a long table of correspondence of which phobia um, relates to which stimulus object, and that's partially due to the interaction of Jung and Freud. Jung was a star student of Freud, and he was really pushing for this in terms of collectivity in the, in the human species, and Freud was more in terms of people's history. And what I can tell you is that since Freud did with this, dealt mostly with disturbed people, he wasn't so far off the mark. Um, what I would say from my own experience and those of my many students who've been through this is that when you're dealing with people who are not psychotic, or at least who are not endogenously depressed, so they're not psychiatric patients, so to speak, then if they have phobias of specific objects or specific situations, those have been conditioned. In other words, say they once had a real anxiety attack due to medication or whatever, and that was um, um, connected to a certain situation they were in or something that just happened before, it will plug onto that. Let's say that there was a family member who actually committed suicide by jumping off a roof. Then if they happen to have a heightened anxiety um, uh, uh, syndrome, they will then latch on onto a fear of heights. If somebody uh, suffered from asthma and couldn't breathe, or if they themselves suffered from asthma and couldn't breathe, and they happen to have a heightened general anxiety level, they might zoom in on not breathing as a phobic situation and then become claustrophobic, perhaps. But it's, I have not seen any kind of symbolic link or symbolic cause in any phobias in non-psychotic patients or in, in non-endogenously depressed patients. However, when you get the people who are paranoid psychotic, when you get the people who are actually depressed to the point that they can no longer function as, as an independent human, then the symbolism works out very well. So, And there, I mean, the table is very easy to use. Right? These tables are almost probably published on any kind of cheap um, drugstore kind of internet site. Um, but yes, it works out very well. And um, essentially, um, one second. So, so essentially the way we, we verify that it, the symbolism is what's extant over here is I can tell how I do it with patients is basically I say, okay, so what's gonna happen to you if you're in an elevator, what do you imagine? They say, okay, I'll get to the point where I just can't breathe and I'm struggling, et cetera, et cetera. I'll say, okay, now tell me other than an elevator, when have you felt this before? And it's clear. We get to an asthma situation. We get to a situation where um, there was a grandfather in the hospital who was coughing to say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and then he died. So it becomes clear that that happened uh, in a conditioning point of view. Whereas when you're dealing with people who are significantly psychiatrically disturbed, not just in, neurotic, in the neurotic realm, then the symbolism is, is very strong. It's not contingent on what happened to them or some kind of association or a reinforcement that has to do with some symbolism that essentially say they have this real um, fear or anxiety around a certain image, around a fire-eating serpent, 
And that gets uh, symbolized in the snake or whatever. And if you want to be psychoanalytic, you can say, why did I have it? And come up with all kinds of sexual poppycock. But you don't need that. Um, but the point is that in terms of treatment, and I have to say the treatment to all of this is best done. Well, first of all, antidepressants are a wonder in terms of controlling uh, depression in general and also um, um, uh, phobic reactions. And what also is very helpful is simple counter-conditioning. Counter-conditioning, there's a, a host of uh, um, uh, methods. I mean, I am least excited about the cognitive behavioral. I think the cognitive shouldn't have been introduced over there. I like the behavioral much better. We can condition anybody to uh, get rid of a phobia. My general deal is that, uh, I mean, I used to do it. I've stopped doing it. Simply, I just moved into diagnostics. But eight sessions, I get rid of any phobia, <laughs> any phobia, any age, any whatever, it's done. But they have to commit to attending the eight sessions and to doing the homeworks. There's no uh -huh. question. And we get rid of it totally simply by counter-conditioning. In other words, if you think of it, stimulus response, you had a certain stimulus that got paired with a certain response. We extinguish that. We extinguish that. And it's very pleasant. It's not fearful. It's not anxiety-producing. It's actually a very relaxed. We use relaxation relaxation training, but it's based on the physiological model. Anxiety means that your autonomy gets put into a certain constellation, which is the definition of anxiety. And what we do is we train you that when the stimulus comes up, you have a different autonomous reaction, and that's it. We get rid of it. Well, so that's I... what out in sight, and it works just as well for people who have it because of symbolic reasons. It doesn't matter. But since I'm a psychoanalyst, I will tell you that it's my belief that as soon as we get rid of phobia, your generalized anxiety level will go up. So oh. here's a story. <laughs> so I had someone who came into a uh, for treatment um, um, because he was a biology teacher and he developed a fear of insects. So I basically come in, I was in Buffalo at the time, and the person uh, was actually brought in because he made a short stop on the, the Jackwater, which is a pretty fast highway, because the spider landed on his, um, on his windshield. He made a short stop and ran from the car. That was not very useful. Okay? So again, I felt that there was some symbolic reasons for it, but it made no difference. I treated him. We got rid of it. At his fifth session, he brought in the tarantula for the session and freaked me out. He says, Doc, I got something for you. And I whoa, okay? And that was just the fifth session. But I am sure that his general anxiety level went up some. But I, it was a good bargain. His general anxiety level went up some, but it's distributed across this whole day and his whole life, not an anxiety reaction. And he was able to resume his job as a bio teacher. Wow. So, so I think there's a, there's a payoff because when we deal with um, behavioral treatments, we don't address the core of it. But practically speaking, People don't want to mess with the core. Nobody has two years to do dream analysis and associations. They're good enough with saying, fine, I got rid of it. Leave me alone. Okay, so every now and then I'll feel uneasy. And I'll take a, um, a, uh, a Xanax. Fine, it's on the head. But at least it's not, a f it's not a focused so intensely in that one specific right. thing. Now, you it's mentioned not intense at all. You mentioned the dream analysis, and I, I know that these things are, are connected. Um, right. This uh, you know, the, the when we, we speak about people having recurrent dreams and mm -hmm. and Freud, of course, worked with this. So it's sort of like the same sort of, uh, or I guess, in, you know, guesswork or I don't know if it's if you would. if the, I, I know that. Well, you can call, how about calling it art? Call it art. art. Somehow but, real... but let me let me just say that dream analysis 
is not the main tool we use. We use free associations. Okay. Which people can use under, like, what does this remind you of, so to speak? Or when else did you feel this way? Or okay. this feels familiar. Why does it feel familiar? That's much closer to what non analysts would consider to be um, intuitive rather than give me a dream and I'll give you interpretation. I'll call Joseph and I'll call Paro and we'll make a whole part. So, so in other words, it could be for one person, a cigar is a cigar, and for another yes. person, a cigar might be something else. Yes, right? yes, indeed. But, but the bottom line is who cares? I mean, practically speaking, who cares? If you want to know truth and if you're a theoretician, yes, you might care. If you have nothing to do with your life, you might want to analyze it. But if the idea is that you want to function as a normal human being, have a job and have relationships, who cares? Who cares? Everybody has some hates of food. It comes from somewhere. It's not always physiological. It's often associational. Do you really care why you don't like broccoli? Yeah. Do you want to spend like $24,000 over, over the next year to get to the bottom of the broccoli? No. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't. Let's move on to the last uh, subject here today because I know this is something you've worked on. Um, and you mentioned food. There are people who uh, in, in, in the phobia uh, realm – Go beyond something, you know, the uh, the fear and even paralysis of in, in social situations because of this fear. There are people who have something else uh, that happens. Um, you know, there's the the guy that you mentioned from uh, on on the throughway or wherever it was that he ran off the road because of the spider. wasn't necessarily, He was scared of the spider. What about people who are disgusted by by these things? That that what happens is it's 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 what wells within them is almost a, a, a hatred and, and a sense that this is something putrid and terrible. It's, it's, they're, they're feeling like they're going to even throw up, I guess, because of it. They're, they're disgusted by it. Now, I, I, I don't know if this is common, but I know that it occurs enough, and I know that you've done some, some work on that. Yeah, yes. I, I've done a significant amount of work on disgust. So let me, let me just mention, if you think of it from the, from the medical perspective or really from an evolutionary perspective, the function, the alleged function of disgust, and according to Jung, of course, it's inborn, according to others, it's like a, a very early modeled, is to make sure that you stay away from stuff that harms you. Like, a, so to speak, the, the master um, theological plan of why you get sick from food poisoning is so that your body gets conditioned to stay away from certain kinds of telltale signs, usually odor-bound signs, that keep you from ever transgressing again and really getting sick and dying. So that's supposedly the inborn response of disgust. Now, to move to more to, the, to, to a moderate fashion, everybody has different tastes in food. Everybody likes certain things. Some people dislike things. Some people dislike things to the point that if anybody's cooking it, I mean, I have a very close relative. If you cook kasha in the house, she will not walk into the house, period. And uh, I have um, a, um, my wife actually told me she was once on the date and she ordered spinach and the guy said, you order this, I'm leaving. <laughs> okay, so, so there are people who really carry to a bizarre extent and some people carry to a moderate extent. Now, some of this has to do with actual physiological sensitivity of certain kinds of uh, taste sensors. That's not usually the case. It's association. Something happened there, and I can track it down probably within an hour exactly where the association came from, if you care. Most people will not want to invest in this. But sometimes it gets to the point where it becomes familiarly or socially disruptive, especially if that lady I was thinking about marries somebody who's a Kasha fan, 
right? And she can't stand it. Or if she uses a certain kind of cologne, if she uses a certain kind of perfume, it can become problematical. But um, there's no question that it is associational for almost all people. And yes, it, it follows the same kind of, uh, shall we say, emotional logic as anxiety, but um, you don't get anxious from a disgusting situation. It basically just serves as a trigger to make sure you avoid it, and it makes you seem peculiar in certain situations. But yes, the internal logic is the same. It's reinforcement-based. Yeah. Although I, I would I would just, you know, put, I'm not pushing back, but I would say if somebody is like your 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 cousin, whoever it is, who's got the kasha disgust aspect. So you're in your, she's at your house. You've already got the kasha cooking and, and she's just, I'm so disgusted. Like she's in a way paralyzed because her, every, what's, what's primary in her brain is the disgust that she's feeling. And therefore sure, she's not able sure. to, she's I, not I would, able to have a she can't have a normal conversation with you. She can't I really. Give you, I, let me give you the analogy. There are certain things that are socially accepted as being very repugnant. Like you would have a hard time having a meal if you had the most horrible odor around, let's say, of excrement that's coming up. You just can't do it. So I, I get it. I get it that it can be very disruptive. Sure, sure. But the logic is the same. It's associational and it's. In terms of the body design, it was originally designed to protect you. Now, it could, of course, be psych psychologically that this odor is reminiscent of an uncle who represented quite an ogre to you. And I know, I, I know specifically of a clinical case where I'm thinking of an uncle who is actually a molester. And this young person developed an abhorrence of a certain odor which pushed them a little, the odor of his cigars. Mm -hmm. Something that sounds like, it was like a cherry kind of cigar. Maybe it was a pipe, some kind of cherry odor. Whoa, that freaked them out. So, so, actually got them close to an anxiety reaction, not just disgust. So, anyway. yeah, let's wind this up with, you know, and I, you know, I'm supposedly the rabbi here and you're the doctor. One of the things that we find in rabbinic literature, especially in, in the this forum of, of, of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, of, of Mordechai Yosef Leiner of Ishbitz is that when a person realizes that God was behind everything, you know, when a person comes to the Akara, that even his Averis are really, you know, the bad things that he's done is really part of God's great plan, that eureka moment is able in a way to free you from your perception of yourself as someone who is a bad person and you sort of, the light gets shined on. And, and, you, and we find this, Israel Salanter and other great Bali Musa also speak about the idea of fighting what seems to be biological or inherent things within your midos, within your normal life by getting some intellectual perception of what it's about recognizing what the dynamic is and using your brain to rise above it. So I'm now going to ask you, because I've heard this and I have to say that I'm probably more influenced by the way it was displayed in, in popular culture, uh, you know, in, specifically in the Hitchcock film, Marnie, which I don't know if you've seen, but I think you should, where once you realize what is behind it, like what the symbolism comes from, once the guy realizes that it's the uncle who was molesting her, or whatever it was, or she realizes that, she can be free. Um, once you have that intellectual knowledge and you, and, and you absorb it, it no longer uh, brings you down. Do you subscribe to that at all, that the intellectual understanding of why you have that 
worry, um, disgust, anxiety, that once you know where it comes from, if it is based on some event that occurred, that that can free you from it? Or do you think it's, it's still going to uh, keep, uh, keep being connected to you? Okay, so you're pushing me over here basically into uh, choosing an alliance between my primary religion and between my Freudian religion. So let me just say, Freud definitely would disagree with this kind of concept. I don't necessarily disagree, but I want to give you a caveat that I think bridges it with standard psychoanalytic theory. There is no uh, bridge between emotion and logic. They have nothing to do with it. What we're talking about over here are emotional conditioning and emotional fears. They're not logical. Fear is not logic. I mean, we're talking about irrational fear. Statistical fear, you can say, I don't want this to happen. That's fine. But that does not make you afraid. There's nothing fearful about anything. Fearful, logically. Fear, fear is an emotion. I hope I'm clear about that. So basically what I would say is, look, we do um, um, deep psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. The way psychoanalysis works is that we use words, we use logic, and then use it associationally to repair emotional association. So let's say you can get to realize 50 times that this uncle was a horrible person and messed up your life and messed up your childhood and relationships. It'll get you nowhere unless you have the guts, and we do that in, in analysis, we have the guts to face that fear, which you've been blocking, face it head on and see, okay, it doesn't scare me as much, but it has to be at the emotional realm. So I, I don't know the Ishbert so well. I've heard a lot of Ishbert from Shlomo Kalbach in my days. I've never heard this particular aspect. He, he specialized more in prayer. But um, the idea is that, yes, once you know the logic of it, and then you can almost trust whoever is guiding you to lead you back to that fearful situation. Because what keeps you always afraid is that it freaked you out so much that anything that even smells like it, literally, like a cigar or cherry smoke, you stay away from so fast and you keep reinforcing the fear reaction of avoidance. So if you can actually go and say, yes, I would face it. And if I would see my uncle right now and say, I'm not afraid of you. There's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not guilty at all. Once you get to that, you're fine. But that's an emotional face-off, and we call it abreaction. People literally, when that happens in therapy, you would think you're dealing with a four-year-old. They regress back to talking like a four-year-old. They curl up like a four-year-old. They talk baby talk, and they go crying. They make all these kinds of noises, and they slobber. You know, They literally regress, but you have to get them at the emotional level. Otherwise, all you can have is attempts at counter-conditioning, which means it won't get in your way, but deep down, it will still be bothering you. So I guess it's a qualified agreement with that rabbinical thought that you had about mind over matter, but mind over emotion, sorry, but mind over emotion only insofar as we can actually bridge it and correct the emotional uh, uh, rotten infrastructure that's there. So, so, that's, uh, so it, sounds, it, sa it, it sounds like what you're, what, what you're saying and, and is that, and, and, and this actually does come up in rabbinic literature in a number of places, the use of hypnosis um, to regress the person back uh, to that sure. state. And, and um, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva about using hypnosis for a woman who had fear of water. She had an incredible, she was a, mm -hmm. a, a convert who, uh, she loved Judaism, but 
The only problem was, was that she, the only way she could dunk herself into the ritual uh, pool, the mikvah, was by submitting to hypnosis. And the or problem- she could have done systematic desensitization, as I said, eight sessions. <laughs> you know this this episode i gotta uh, you know normally you know we work on our our blurb you've got to give me a uh, a hyperlink so people are going to be able if they do listen to this to be able to contact you uh, to get help as far as <laughs> okay, far as that goes okay. so no, it ain't just, it, let me tell you something systematic desensitization is psych 101 yeah, I understand. any behavioral therapist can do it it sounds like I can send you to my practitioners. I don't do it. Well, it sounded like you said. I don't know if everybody else can claim eight sessions or less, but it sounds like. Oh, that's sure. Something. Yes, yes. Everybody can claim it. Yeah. Okay. No all your all your Talmudim that are out there, but yeah, not just mine. Yeah. Okay. But but again, you 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 uh, can, can 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 understand that that the uh, the hypnosis. Uh, hypnosis I, is an alternative. It, it accomplishes to say it allows you to actually face your emotional demons on an emotional level. So it's actually, it's interesting in that Shuva of Ramosha really speaks about the idea of, well, what about, you know, part of becoming a, um, a complete Jew from being a convert is the knowledge and the acceptance. And when she's under hypnosis, she's not necessarily in this world completely. So the question is, you know, uh, would it be able to be acceptable in terms of, you know, her, her understanding there? So that was something that uh, ah, Moshe okay. dealt with in out terms of, of, out of out of my league, okay. but but it was it was an interesting case of Kabbalah's mitzvahs. You know, Moshe felt that if you know, that, oh, you that, mean because she would be in an hypnotic state while she's accepting? Hypnosis. Yes, that's exactly. Oh, right. oh, I thought. Okay, I'm sorry. I right. thought you were using hypnosis to cure her of the phobia. And what no, no, using hypnosis to basically distance her from part of herself. As she's undergoing it, then you know it's almost That's like right. she doesn't like drugging her. That's right. That's exactly I what got, it was. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I um would qualify my response then, but okay, let's not do this up here. All right, good. So that's about it. I hope that for people who are listening, who are suffering um, from the over, uh, as I said, the overexposure to all the bad news, um, perhaps it's worthwhile to just you know. Get, get your minute or two of update and not constantly have your ear to the ground uh, to about what's going on and what new strain. It doesn't seem like that is necessarily going to be helpful for anybody's uh, psychological or physical well-being in any sort of way, shape, or form. All right, thanks again. We'll see you, Mir Tashem, hopefully with the will of God. And stay healthy, everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.